Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Hope that y'all are doing great. When I was growing up, one thing I didn't like was, was when somebody called somebody else a fool. It just didn't seem right. In fact, it seemed a little bit harsh. Of being foolish, that's something I can identify with. I can say with confidence that I have been foolish many times in my life. In fact, it might be a daily occurrence. I have and continue to make, well, unwise decisions. In fact, if, you, if you're around me enough, you know that I might even play a couple of practical jokes or so. Or so right? Yes. So I do play a couple of practical jokes, and sometimes people can call me a big goofball, or as one might say, foolish. Now, I look at you, and you're probably identifying with this, right? You, you can identify with being foolish at times. I think most of us have, and most, most of us can identify with this. Well, here we are, right in the middle of Lent this week. We've been foolish at what it means to be a fool or live for Christ. So that the way we live our lives might raise questions among people that we meet outside the church. Questions like, what makes Christians different than anybody else? Why do Christians stand out in sharp contrast to the ways of the world around us? How do they manage to give sacrificially and still have enough to live on? How do they always seem to know exactly what to say at the right time? or what to do at the right time when people are hurting? How do they manage to love people that they don't even know or maybe don't even like? When we're fools for Christ, these are questions people might ask about us. But in first century Corinth, people had stopped asking those questions and the church was deep in trouble, made up of several groups that met in homes. What we would call house churches today, the church was a mess. One of the church leaders, a woman named Chloe, had sent some of her people to ask Paul for help. So Paul writes this letter, not just to Chloe, but for the whole church in Corinth. Remember that city of Corinth was strategically located between two seaports. There was constant merchant traffic through the city, and Corinth was also home to some very, very important pagan temples, or at least they thought they were important. One of those was the temple of Aphrodite, where there may have been as many as a thousand temple slaves serving the goddess of love. Corinth could be compared to our modern day Las Vegas. You know the place that we call Sin City. While what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas, whatever happened in Corinth spread throughout the Roman Empire because of its prime location along the major trade route. What a great mission opportunity for the church, right? To spread the gospel. But the church in Corinth had lost its bearings and that great mission opportunity was being wasted. So when we read 1 Corinthians, we must remember Paul is writing to one of his most troubled churches. It's a church that has, was experiencing conflict among many groups and many leaders. This church was allowed, that had allowed sexual sin to go unchallenged. It has adopted the social hierarchy of the culture around it, 
giving preference to the wealthy and the power at the expense of the poor and the weak. The church adapted to the pagan culture of Corinth instead of following the countercultural ways of Christ. We see in the beginning verses of 1 Corinthians that Chloe's people have alerted Paul to the problems where they were experiencing in Corinth, and Paul is writing to respond. His letter includes three major themes. He writes to correct bad theology, he, to correct bad behavior, and to reorient the Christians in Corinth toward the cross of Jesus Christ. Carla works as a professor at Wesleyan, Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. She writes that Paul reminds the believers of the topsy-turvy nature of the cross. God chose the most shameful thing in the world because the values in which the world operates, where some have privilege and status at the expense of others, looks nothing like God's reign. She goes on to explain that our translation of the word for foolish is more polite than the literal translation. The Greek word for fool sounds a lot like the English word for moron. So Paul is saying that the pagan world considers belief in Christ to be moronic. But Paul doesn't let the Jewish believers off the hook either. Remember that Corinth is a very cosmopolitan city. The young church there is made up of both Jews and Greeks. And the Jewish intellects are not living out their trust in Christ any more faithfully than the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians are. And Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? For Jews demand signs and Greeks desires wisdom. Many Jews considered the good news of Jesus Christ to be foolish because they had thought that the Messiah would be a conquering king accompanied by signs and wonders. Jesus had not restored David's throne the way they had expected it would happen. Besides, he was executed as a criminal, and how can a criminal be a savior? Greeks, too, considered the good news foolish. They did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They did not see in Jesus the powerful characteristics of their mythological gods, and they thought no reputable person would be crucified. To them, death was defeat, not victory. It's easy for us to shake our heads at those crazy Corinthians, right? That is, until we read these words, until we hear this question, where is the debater of this age? And suddenly, we remember all those arguments we've been following, or maybe even been a part of on social media. We see how people are being personally attacked by a misperception. We see how many people are being bullied and crushed without a cause. Arguments about politics and moral issues. Arguments about rights and rules. Arguments about values and opinions. Arguments that in no way, no how, point the way to the saving grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. As Ellie Kemper said in her sermon on Youth Sunday, Let's make a conscious choice to step down from our own personal pulpits and enter into the lives of others with both humility and compassion in hopes of spreading more light into the uncertainty and fear of the world around us. That line really has stuck with me because I find that it's easier for some people to look down on others 
than to bow down before God. And every time we engage in these arguments, even as silent observers, we fall into the same trap the Corinthian church did. We've let the wisdom of the culture around us have more influence on us than thinking that the realization that God loves us. We forget to realize that God loves us so much that he would die for us. And yet, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What kind of fools are we? What kind of fools are we to ignore the power of the cross where love wins? Like the Corinthians, we supposedly have believed in the power of the cross. So why is Paul reminding them and us of what we already have accepted? The problem for the Corinthians was that God's wisdom has, had not been translated into their daily lives. And we certainly can identify with this. How many times do we allow our culture to dictate our lives? One simple example of this in our culture today is how the world has stolen our Sundays. We can identify with this, right? For many of us, when we were growing up, there, there, would, there would be no workplace that would be open. Um, even for me in Columbia, South Carolina, they were called something called the Blue Laws. And the Blue Laws meant that you could even begin a business till afternoon so that people could come to church. And how about our schools? When I was growing up, you would never have a ball game or a practice on Sundays. But now, culturally, it would be countercultural not to have sports or work on Sundays. The problem for us is that we are sometimes just as foolish, foolish when we don't let God's um, wisdom penetrate into our lives and to change us. We allow the world, what the world considers to be moronic, to, to shame the wise. And this goes beyond the cross. God continues to love the weak, the poor, the outcast, the uneducated, and those who live on the margins of society because God invites all to become children of God. Just as Jesus ate with the outcasts when he walked this earth, Christ continues through us to welcome all people into his fellowship. Nathan Mitchell, a monk at St. Meinrad says, so every time Christians gather at the Lord's table, they acknowledge their solidarity with the world's poor, with all the outcasts and marginalized, the unlovely, unloved, unwashed, and unwanted of our species. And they also make the radical political statement that the world's present socioeconomical system is doomed. It will, Christians believe, believe it will be replaced by God's reign, where all have equal access to the feast, where the only power is the power exercised on behalf of the poor and needy, where God's agenda is the human agenda, where God has chosen relatedness to people as the only definition of the divine. So what kind of fool are you? Are you the kind of fool whose highest value is found in what the world considers to be important? Or are you the kind of fool who finds community among those whom the power of the cross, the power of the cross means absolutely everything. Remember those commandments that we read at the beginning of the worship service? They were countercultural in their day. In Jewish tradition, they aren't even called commandments. They are called the 10 words or the 10 teachings. They taught people how to be the people of God in the midst of a pagan society. They sounded foolish to the Anakites, 
the Amorites, and the Canaanites. But following these words to live by, set apart God's people, and made the other nations wonder, how is their God so powerful? How is their God so different than our puny gods? Even in the gospel lesson, as Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple, he is making a countercultural statement too. Those money changers were necessary for temple worship. They converted Roman coins into the temple money that could be used to purchase animals appropriate for sacrifice. This was very important for people who traveled from far away. It was impossible for them to bring animals to sacrifice, which would still be acceptable by the time that they made it to Jerusalem. But God's temple was being misused by people who had turned it into a marketplace. They had forgotten or just didn't care that God's house is a place of worship, not a place of making a profit. And Jesus did get angry. Jesus was angry at the dishonest, greedy practices of the money changers and the merchants, and he particularly disliked their presence on the temple grounds. But we also see something very profound here, and I hope that you saw this too. We see that Jesus was announcing a new way of worship, eliminating the need for animal sacrifices completely because he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice for all our sins. That was revolutionary, countercultural. That Jesus was saying he was coming to do away for any sacrifice because he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. In both of these readings, God was announcing a new way of being in community with God and with each other. Paul reminds us that this new way of being together may look foolish to others but it is how we proclaim Christ crucified and how we reveal the power of God and the wisdom of God to the people of God. So, if being a fool looks like giving sacrificially, caring for the sick and the needy, loving God with everything you've got, loving your neighbor as yourself, well, you can call me a fool. <laughs> 